0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Shawnee Show. Today, I'm doing a bonus episode uh, on the Russia-Ukraine situation. I just felt like I had to cover it, and honestly, just for my own curiosity, because I didn't really understand what was going on in the region. Spoke about it a little bit yesterday with my father on the David Suiza podcast, Conversations with Shawnee um, show. And I just had so many questions afterwards. So I spoke to him and I said, can we get somebody to come on the Shawnee show so I can just pick their brains and see what's going on here? Uh, There's just so much at play, so many factors, so many different dynamics uh, between countries. And it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. But I brought on Dan Schner, who's a fantastic analyst. He's a professor at so many different universities. Uh, He's really just a, a highly esteemed and highly accredited political analyst in this space. So really pleased that he was able to join me. He has an amazing piece uh, in the Jewish Journal, which discusses this sort of post post cold world era. We do discuss that a little bit uh, in the episode. We also talk about it towards the end, where we talk about what he mentioned in his article about this tripolar world that we're living in, which, you know, the new world powers really are China, Russia and the US. So uh, we discuss that we discuss how This affects Israel and and its interest with both Ukraine and Russia. We discuss, uh, you know, what Biden did throughout this process and leading up to what is now full-fledged invasion from Russia into Ukraine. We also spoke about what happens in uh, Crimea. I don't think I'm saying that right, but we do speak about what happens there or what happened there in 2014 and how that sort of ties into now. Uh, We really cover a lot of bases. We also talk about NATO and how that is sort of affecting everything here. Uh, There's just a lot of moving parts. And you know what, honestly, by the time I release this information, we did record it today, Friday, February 25th. We recorded at 9am. I'm just letting you guys know that because by the time I upload it, which will probably be around, I don't know, 11, maybe, maybe 12, maybe even a little bit later in the afternoon. And I do believe that the news will have changed by then. (laughs) You know, so much is happening. Uh, Every hour there is breaking news on this situation. So You know, it might not be the freshest information by the time it updates. That's just really the sort of situation that we're in now. Things are changing at the drop of a hat. And uh, even on the show, Dan says that uh, Putin or Putin, however you want to say his name, does actually release a statement saying he's willing to talk, you know, what that means or how that's transpired now since the news came out, which was right before we started recording. I have no idea. It's really a crazy situation. I just want to recommend some resources as well to get informed on what's happening over there. I'm going to drop them in the episode description. There was a great lecture by Posner uh, that's available on YouTube, which dives deep into this idea of how the US and the West in general sort of created the current Vladimir Putin that we all know today and his temperament and, and the moves he's made. So that was a really great lecture. Also, of course, the Dan Schner article on the tripolar world that we're living in. And then uh, he also has a webinar that he does, which I'll be linking in as well. You know, it covers a lot and you we can't possibly expect anybody to keep up with all of the news and read every single bit of information that's going on out there. So I hope that I give you guys a little window into all of the different segments at play here. And I, I mean, I hope you don't enjoy this episode because it's a really sad situation, but I do hope you get something out of it. So thank you. just uh, talk about the situation because I think a lot of people I mean a don't really know what's going on from the perspective of like what's happening but then I also really want to go into your sort of expertise which is the repercussions and this tripolar thing that you were talking about I think is super fascinating in your piece so we can dive into that as well
1: Excellent. Let's do it.
0: All right. Fantastic. So I'll do an intro beforehand, so we'll just jump right in. Um, I think the best place for us to start is if you can just give my audience a, a recap of, of what's happening right now. Cur- the current state of affairs over there.
1: Okay. Well, the challenge, of course, is it's changing by the minute. And one of the things I realized in writing for the Jewish Journal is submitting something on Monday for Wednesday publication means that the world over there changes seven or eight times in 48 hours. But at least at this moment, Shani, as you know, um, it appears that Russian troops um, are getting very close to the Ukrainian capital of Kvev. And it's an open question on how much longer the Ukrainian military will be able to hold out. Mm. Real challenge going forward for the Russians is less about vanquishing The Ukrainian military, in a conventional war, the Russian uh, troop size is is far, far greater and their capabilities are much, much greater as well. The real challenge will be with an ongoing insurgency. They call it the porcupine approach. The idea of making it as prickly and as difficult for an invading power to to swallow. Mm. The U.S. and Russia experienced this in Afghanistan um, in the recent-
0: in what way? Can you explain that?
1: Oh, sure. B- basically, the idea is um, a conventional military confrontation between Russia and Ukraine, unfortunately, is overwhelmingly one sided. Um, but just as was the case when the U.S. and before that, the Soviet Union tried to occupy Afghanistan, the ongoing resistance the sort of asymmetrical air warfare of guerrilla attacks of civilian resistance of other types of pushback can make it untenable for an occupying power to continue to occupy. So Got the military it. conflict we're seeing right now is heavily weighted in Russia's favor, but it really is only the first stage of something that's much that's likely to continue much for a much much longer period of time.
0: So essentially Ukraine would need to fight smarter, right, than harder because they they just can't fight harder than Russia.
1: Well, obviously, they need to do both. And I think unlike in 2014, where Ukrainian civilians with little or no military training put up a very, very small amount of resistance to Russian aggression then, the Ukrainian military really has built up to impressive levels over the last eight years. That said, compared to the Russian military presence, as I said earlier, it really is an almost hopelessly one-sided battle.
0: So you're talking about what happened in Crimea, right? Yes. Does that have anything to do with what's happening now? I mean, was that at all related to the current conflict?
1: Um, It did. And that's the really smart question to ask, because a lot of us, just because we're so fascinated by the present, tend to look past the historical perspective. And Chani, you're asking exactly the right question, which is a better way to think about this is as another in a continuing set of steps by Putin Mm. and the Russian leadership to reclaim territory that they believe is rightfully theirs. In Crimea, before that in Georgia, in Belarus, and in some of the eastern uh, regions of current-day Ukraine. Over the years, the Russians have steadily tried to encroach, and this is the most visible and the most aggressive, but it's one of many such steps.
0: So do you feel like what Putin is doing now, I mean, is it a strategic play where he's over this, you know, he's sort of looking at the current situation as an opportunity to continue his plan, which he had all along, which was to essentially take over Ukraine and to take over all of these territories and these areas, you know, is he just using the current situation to sort of give almost like a reasoning behind it?
1: Well, another really smart question, and I'm a little bit uh, reluctant to try to Mm -hmm. (laughs) mind-read Vladimir Putin. You mean you can't
0: mind-read Vladimir Putin?
1: (laughs) A lot of smarter people than me have tried and and, and failed, so I'm certainly not going to try. But what I I would say is is this. There, there, there There are two parallel things going on right now with Putin and Russia. One is Ukraine, which Putin and many other members of his leadership team, do believe is a part of Russia, always has been, and if not for historical aberration, would have never stopped being a part of Russia. So they're simply, for them reclaiming, for Putin, reclaiming Ukraine is like us reclaiming Texas. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, but there's another school of thought, and we'll find out in the next couple of weeks, which is more valid, that Ukraine is really just an excuse for mm. Putin. That while on one hand, he doesn't want to see it westernize because he believes that Russia needs a buffer between itself and the West. But also, there's this school of thought that Ukraine's just an excuse. And essentially, what Putin is really trying to do is resurrect the security architecture of the Cold War and to take all the other Soviet client states outside of Russia. That either have either moved to the west or maintained some level of neutrality since the 1990s, he wants them back. And Putin has said publicly that he believes that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the last century. And at age 70, it's reasonable to assume that he's thinking about his place in history. And if he can be the person to reunite the Soviet Union, even under a different name, that that's the way he'd be remembered for, you know, for centuries to come.
0: So, you know, I asked my dad this yesterday because it seems as if Ukraine, I mean, obviously there is intention behind going into the Ukraine, but it it seems as if all of this is sort of reasonless and senseless, if that makes sense. And that the Ukraine just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, and that it it could have been, I mean, whatever state was going to be there would be what Putin would go after. Right. It doesn't feel like as if because I asked him, I, I thought, you know, from my brief understanding of the situation, I've been traveling the last few days. So I haven't really been keeping track of of everything going on. I thought the Ukraine had done something within the last couple of days to sort of aggravate the situation. But in reality, they've done nothing. Correct.
1: Well, uh, aside from being an independent state, you mean.
0: Right, ex- exactly. Aside from existing. Right. Yes.
1: <laughs> right. And I, th- I think that's right in the immediate Um, That said, there is some back and forth bickering Mm. between the two countries that goes back into the early part of last decade. Um, The uh, the the then Ukrainian president uh, attempted to sign a trade deal with the European Union. Putin got mad. He threatened to get in the way of Ukraine-Russia trade, and it just sort of escalated from there. And what Mm -hmm. makes it more complicated, as you and your audience know, Shani, is that Trump's involvement in the country over the last several years has complicated things even further. So at the same time, you have struggles within Ukraine between pro-Russian and pro-Western forces. All of a sudden, there's Trump and his agents creating an additional set of complications. And Biden... Uh, who is certainly not as respectful of Putin as Trump is,
0: Mm.
1: comes in in the aftermath of that, and the tensions ratchet up to another level.
0: So can you explain, maybe dive deeper into what Trump's involvement was and and the complications that that sort of brings up?
1: Boy, I I don't know if we have enough time for that, (laughs) at least not today. Um, But the very short version is that uh, Trump's chief political advisor, Uh, Paul Manafort, was very involved in helping the pro-Russian Ukrainian leader for a period of time. And Mm -hmm. that's not uncommon. American political consultants in both parties engage in international campaigns. Frankly, it's a lot more profitable than doing campaigns in the United States. Um, What was unique here is that Manafort was involved for a Ukrainian leader who is very ardently pro-Russian. At the same time, um, or actually prior to that, then Vice President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, uh, was involved in the Ukraine in a series of business ventures, which Trump and many of his allies alleged were done by pro-Russian Ukrainians trying to curry favor with then Vice President Biden. Okay. Then for those of you who followed the, the Trump impeachment, you'll, you'll remember this. Trump tried through a variety of reasons to influence the current Ukrainian leadership, to turn over information to him that it would implicate the Bidens in inappropriate activity that led to Trump's impeachment. Anyway, or, or, or we're opening all sorts of conversations. <laughs> and unless you want to turn this into a telethon, we probably ought to get back to the, the to the to the current situation.
0: I mean, I can call Chabad. We can organize the telethon right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no, it, it is. It is really interesting, and there's so many moving parts. And something that I feel like, I mean, for sure, your expertise in terms of just the repercussions and you know what this means for all of the other countries at play. I'd love to dive into that because it, it's just so complicated, right? You know, Israel, I, and we can talk about Israel now. I mean, their position in this is is pretty crazy because they're sort of building these relations with Russia, and Russia has you know its presence in um, is it Afghanistan or Syria. So, right. right, and, and, and so if Israel then intervenes on behalf of the Ukrainians, then they're now stepping into a, a really dangerous territory with Russia, who has a presence very close to Israel and has been helping Israel and working with them. And so what does that mean? I mean, what does this mean for Israel? What's at play here and what sort of factors, I mean, are going to develop over the next uh, the next couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, this is a really, really complicated uh, situation. and It's a really difficult situation for Israel, uh, because they've maintained for several years now very strong relationships with both Ukraine and with Russia.
0: Mm. And
1: for years, uh, as your fathers in my generation will remember, the relationship between Israel and Russia was very tense and very confrontational. Um, the Soviet Union tended to share uh, side with the Arab countries through most of the latter half of the 20, uh, 20, 20th century. Um, when Netanyahu uh, was leader, he uh, understood the benefits that Israel would realize from a stronger relationship with Russia, particularly, as you mentioned a moment ago, um, in Syria. And the two countries have coordinated there in a way that's been to the benefit of both Israel and Russia. So at the same time, the first under Netanyahu and now under Bennett, that Israel's had really strong relationships with Russia. It's also had really strong relationships with Ukraine. And it's been left in this absolutely no-win situation of having to figure out how not to pick a side. And yeah, I, I joked earlier about the, the, the challenge of writing a column on Monday that published on Wednesday. Mm. Well, on Monday, in this week's Jewish Journal, tell your dad I gave, gave him a free plug, um, <laughs> uh, the must-read Jewish Journal. Um, on Monday, um, I submitted a column to him about how Israel really hadn't taken sides in the uh, yeah, in this what was then a standoff as opposed to a full-on war. Um, over the course of the next couple days, Israel's leaders began speaking out on this just because as low-grade tensions turned into all-out war, there was no way around it. Mm. And even already, but even as of last night, and uh, even as of Thursday night, we saw very, very different hacks being taken by Naftali Bennett, the Prime Minister, of course, and the Foreign Minister, Yair Lapid. Um, Lapid was very, very critical of Russia, uh, saying, he said, the Russian attack on Ukraine is a serious violation of international order and Israel condemns the attack. Now, Bennett had avoided that kind of language because he didn't want to anger the ally in Russia. So after Bennett does the, excuse me, after Lapid does this, then Bennett puts out his statement and all he talks about is evacuating Israelis from the region, assisting Jews who wanted to leave. Um, he said that Israel you know, supported maintaining uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity, but never even mentioned Russia. Mm. So here you have most of the United States allies lining up very clearly with Ukraine, Israel almost out of necessity, needing to be much more cautious.
0: Do you feel like Yair Lapid's statements were and and Bennett's statements were so maybe not so differing, but the fact that they were slightly different is because of where they they fall on the political spectrum and that, you know, Bennett is a little bit more to the right?
1: I think that's part of it. And I think that's really, really smart analysis. Um, you know, uh, on the other hand, it's also the difference between a prime minister and a defense minister.
0: Mm.
1: So just like in an American political campaign, the vice president usually has sharper criticism of the other side than the president.
0: Mm.
1: And this one, I think they may have decided. I don't know. I I don't know. But my guess is it was less Lapid and Bennett not coordinating than rather coordinating very closely and deciding the defense minister can make a sharper comment while the person in charge needed to be more careful.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Almost as if Bennett really, you know, he wants to maintain that relationship that he has with Russia and sort of be like, no, that was that was the ear, you know, don't listen to him kind of a thing and and sort of still have that sort of backdoor channel that he can, you know, pawn off. It's like. It's like if you have siblings, for example, right? And you want to keep one on your side, you know, and and you want to, but you're still kind of on the other one's side. But you just, you know, it's it's a political game, I guess, at play here. Um, but talk to so talk to me about um, uh, what Russia's interests are in Syria. Why are they even there, and how is that beneficial to Israel?
1: Okay, okay. So th- this gets even more complicated. And good thing you've got such a well-educated audience because. I don't know. It gets it gets somewhat intricate. Mm. So when in Syria, when Assad began using chemical weapons, actually before Assad began using chemical weapons against his own people several years ago, then President Obama warned him that if he did so, the U.S. would respond forcefully. And the problem with drawing a red line on the ground is then you have to maintain it. The Obama administration, for defensible reasons, decided not to go after Assad the way uh, the way Obama had originally threatened to. So that created a vacuum in Syria. And that was a matter of concern, not just for Israel, but all the countries. Uh, yeah. so I'm,
0: I'm going to stop you really quickly. I, I just want to ask, do you think that that, that then led to uh, Syria and also the rest of the world taking America less seriously? I, I do
1: think so. And some of Biden's more forceful critics point also to the recent pullout from Afghanistan as Mm -hmm. is other evidence that a bad actor in the world might see the US talking tough and then retreating. And so to give Biden credit where it's due, in this current crisis, um, he has been much more forceful, but he has been criticized for the way he handled the Afghanistan, the pullout from Afghanistan And Obama was criticized harshly for the same reason. So Russia saw an opportunity. And so the the US had created sort of a, had created somewhat of a vacuum in this area. And while Russia had made some ties with Assad in Syria over the years, this was an opportunity for Russia to come in in a much bigger way. And so Putin, who'd been rebuilding the Russian military uh, very assiduously over the last several years, frankly, he wanted to take it out for a spin. by taking his his newly rebuilt military to Syria, he was able to get a sense for what it was capable of. It also made Russia the go-to power in the Middle East, at least on this matter, as opposed to the U.S., who had traditionally played that role. Now, Israel, of course, as you know, needs to maintain a military presence in Syria, if only for self-defense. Of course. And Netanyahu realized that the better his relationship was with Putin and the better Israel's relationship was was with Russia, the better they would be able to coordinate so that the Russian military presence and the Israeli military presence would not even inadvertently end up getting in each other's way. Mm. So that became the trigger, but the relationship strengthened for a number of other reasons as well, but Syria really was the the primary motivator for that.
0: So, I mean, it seems like Putin is just kind of uh, I mean, obviously he has a massive ego, but it seems like he's making a lot of moves based purely on just what he wants to do almost, right? As opposed to what kind of makes sense. So you're dealing with somebody who's not necessarily making as much sense. Do you think that that came into play at all when the US was dealing with Russia this last couple of weeks, trying to stop or prevent this invasion? I mean, were were they thinking about that? And- If they weren't, I mean, what was the strategy with the U.S. dealing with Russia and how do you feel like they could have improved that to potentially prevent what's happening now?
1: Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, Of course. And Biden, and not just Biden, but the other Western leaders believed that if they threatened sufficient economic harm on Putin and on Russia through very aggressive sanctions, that they might be able to make him think twice. They also felt, and Biden actually deserves great credit for this, by broadcasting the intelligence that they had accumulated about Russian aggression that hadn't occurred yet, they were able to help shape world opinion in a way that actually has been helpful. Um, In other words, by saying our intelligence tells us Putin is doing this and he's getting ready to be doing that,
0: Mm.
1: actually sort of smart positioning. It's like, I don't know, for any of your listeners who were ever involved in debate in high school and college,
0: I did, so I did the, speech and debate. I did, uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> okay, so
1: Sean, you know this. The, one of the most effective things you can do in a debate is to say, my worthy opponent is about to tell you X, Y, and Z. But here, how, here's why he's wrong. Because you undermine that argument even before he makes it, right?
0: Right, you present their case. Right,
1: right. but also present the holes in it. And Absolutely. that's what Biden and the West had been doing, which actually was very smart in terms of world opinion. They just overestimated the impact that world opinion would have on Putin. And more importantly, it appears they may have overestimated the impact that economic sanctions would have on Mm. him. I think Putin understands that certainly in the U.S., but to to, to just as greater, greater degree in France, Germany, and other Western European countries, that there's a relatively limited will among the voters in the West Mm. to suffer economic harm of their own. In order, to, uh, in, in order to push Russia back. Putin doesn't have to worry about public unrest in Russia the way Macron or Schultz or Johnson or Biden does. Right. He's calculating thinking Biden's threatening all these really harsh sanctions, but if he goes all the way, gasoline prices in California just go up another dollar a gallon. Is he going to be willing to, is he Biden going to be willing to do that? So Putin's calculation was, that the Western leaders, Biden, Macron, and others just simply didn't have the political backing to be as forceful as they threatened. And it's now, who knows, a week from now, it could, could be completely different. A day from now, it could be completely different. But at least right now, it looks like the West felt that the threat of economic sanctions, not just against Russia, but against Putin's friends and inner circle of oligarchs might cause him to to think twice. And mm. apparently it, has, it hasn't.
0: So it was almost as if the West threw out a bluff and Putin called it.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Mm. And it's it's interesting because, you know, years and years ago, uh, President George W. Bush uh, said that when he first met with Putin, he looked into his eyes and saw Putin's soul. When Biden, and this is Biden's story, there's no way to know whether it, it actually happened or not. But mm. by Biden's accounting, when he met Putin as vice president, he said, I'm looking into your eyes and I don't see any soul. And Biden says that Putin responded by smiling and saying, I think we understand each other, Mr. Vice President. How? <laughs> Biden doesn't have any illusions about Putin um, the, way, the, way, the way other American and Western politicians might. But even though he you know, was deeply suspicious and very skeptical of of Putin's motives, obviously Biden and his advisors did feel like these sanctions would have greater impact than they have had.
0: So, I mean, you're giving Biden a lot of credit, which is, I guess, kind of unusual in the narrative that I'm seeing everywhere else. So I'd love if you could talk about why people are so harsh on him. What are the main criticisms that, you know, are commonplace right now? Because I haven't heard many people sort of giving any credit to Biden at all.
1: Well, I I do give him some credit um, for releasing that intelligence to help shape the narrative. Um, I do give him credit for being skeptical of Putin from the beginning. But the criticism, I think, comes in a couple of ways, as we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, First of all, Putin and for that matter, China's and North Korea's and Iran's leaders uh, were very likely looking at the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan as a message, if not an invitation that in fact, the United States for all its talk after a Trump to Biden transition was not going to be the kind of forceful presence in the world again, um, the way Biden had indicated. And then again, and it is easy to Monday morning quarterback, but it is clear that in retrospect, Biden did overestimate the impact that uh, Western sanctions would have on Putin. Mm. Now. It's being reported just in the last hour or two that Putin has indicated that he's open for talks. Now we'll we'll see whether that's the case or not. But if that is a legitimate offer on Putin's part, it's entirely possible that he Putin might say, "All right, I'm willing to talk, but I'm certainly not giving any of these these regions of Ukraine back."
0: What what regions have they taken? Regions already have they been successful in claiming ter- territory in the Ukraine?
1: Yeah, this is. Uh, uh, this is sort of the the death of a thousand cuts dynamic that we were talking about earlier, mm. and in fact, at the yeah, uh, at the same time and in the years after uh, Russia retook Crimea, um, it began to support increasingly pro-Russian resistance uh, a, 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 a pro-Russian resistance presence in eastern Ukraine. And so, in the uh, in the mid two thousand uh Ukraine and Russia and several European countries came to an agreement that would give those eastern regions much more autonomy from Ukraine, but they'd still technically be part of Ukraine. For all practical purposes, they no longer are. Mm. And it's regardless of how successful Biden and the West are from this point forward, it's very difficult to see a scenario in which Russia will leave the Donbass region any more than they would leave Crimea. So those are the Eastern regions which were being contested for all practical purposes now belong to uh, to Russia's supporters. And the rest of the country you know, is changing literally by the minute. As we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, um, it's clear that Russian troops are essentially in the suburbs of mm. Uh, the yeah, the Ukrainian capital, and are making advances in other parts of the country too. So, except for the far, the way to think about this is, of course, Russia is you know, Russia is to the to the east of Ukraine. Um, Belarus, which is a very strong Russian ally, is to the south. And as you may remember, recently uh, Putin deployed uh, tens of thousands of Russian troops to Belarus for training exercises.
0: Mm.
1: And Crimea, as you were mentioning, is directly to the north. So essentially, there were Russian troops on three sides of Ukraine, and they're coming in from all sides. So with the exception of the far western part of the country, uh, the city of Lviv, for example, which is where many of my ancestors came from, um, there is a Russian military presence throughout most of the rest of the country right now. Now yeah, that's I- being contested, but but they're there.
0: I saw the map and I saw, I mean, uh, what was that, Uh, Levev? Is that how you pronounce it? That was the only place that didn't have a sort of X on it as to where Russia had already been. I mean, it was pretty crazy that they had already gone so far over to the West. I'm assuming, obviously, by plane and things like that.
1: Well, by plane, but also keep in mind that if Crimea is a Russian uh, outpost to the north, excuse me, to the south in Belarus, is a Russian ally to the left. It wasn't just air. You actually had ground troops moving in addition to the air attacks from three three sides.
0: So crazy. So you said that uh, Putin just released uh, a a statement that he's willing to discuss, to talk. I mean, what was that? Was there anything else given in that statement?
1: I saw that just in passing before we we signed on. Mm. And so it's impossible to know, know whether he is being sincere, or if, as last week, when his defense minister said that negotiations were still yeah, uh, possible, that they just, they weren't. If you remember a week ago, Russia was saying, we're going to reduce our true presence in the border areas, <laughs> and didn't. Uh, Putin's defense minister had set up a meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, which is clearly not going to happen. So it might just be Putin mouthing language to sound mm. like long to settle or on the other hand he could be legit and say rather than trying to swallow the porcupine of ukraine and deal with an insurgency in a country of more than 40 million people for the next yeah however many years who knows maybe he'll just decide to put his wins in his pockets it's like shani i hope you don't mind the question have you ever been to las vegas
0: yes and i'm actually going in march
1: <laughs> okay have you ever gambled
0: I have with very okay. little money. <laughs> okay,
1: so it is, this is a challenge a gambler, every gambler faces at a certain point. Uh, if you've won some money, do you put it in your pocket and walk away, mm. or do you keep gambling? And it's entirely possible that you uh, that Putin could decide to put his winnings in his pocket and then negotiate a peace, knowing that he now has at least Eastern Ukraine, if not much larger. Parts of the country, so we just don't know yet how sincere his statement was, but it's entirely possible it was sincere because he's decided he'd rather pocket his winnings than try to occupy a country like this for a long time. On the other hand, it could be a complete misdirection, and Ukraine could just be the beginning, and if the challenge for Biden in the West is pronounced now, um, it's worth remembering Ukraine is not a member of NATO that while we're providing great amounts of support we have no obligation there but uh if putin were to move into estonia or latvia or lithuania or poland then we have a then we have a very significant obligation and my own gut is that while the american people who are sort of lukewarm about this whole thing in ukraine i can't imagine they'd be any that much more excited about us troops in estonia
0: Mm. Mm. it's so i mean there's just so much at play we'll definitely talk about nato uh but before we get into that i i'm wondering because parts of ukraine are pro-russia correct and that's sort of a a weird dynamic like there are civilians in the ukraine ukrainian civilians who are pro-russia what does that kind of mean and, and how commonplace is that Well,
1: it's pretty commonplace because if you think about it, once you draw a border between any two countries, you can't automatically assume that everyone on one side of the line is loyal politically, culturally, ethnically to one country. And everyone on the other side of the line is completely loyal politically, culturally, ethnically Mm. to the other. You know, this is the debate over right of return uh, in Israel, right? Right. So. When the line was drawn between Russia and Ukraine, there's a lot of people in the eastern part of Ukraine whose heritage is more Russian than Ukrainian. And so there are some historic allegiances, but also Russia is known to be very, very aggressive in its use and abuse of media. And so they've been bombarding these eastern regions for years with a pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine message and built up a pretty solid base of support. So the so-called Donbas region which is which is for all practical purposes eastern Ukraine in 2015 Ukraine in order to avoid well first of all that region has been the scene of all sorts of anti-Ukrainian resistance both violent and and political and in 2015 Ukraine decided that rather than continuing to deal with that resistance the way they'd been forced to they cut an agreement that would give those regions, ordering Russia, more autonomy from Ukraine. Mm. So they're, still, they're still part of Ukraine, but they elect their own government. They have, they have independent, they, they, they have other types of, of, of autonomy as well. And so, given the fact that it's sort of political no man's land, and there are a lot of cultural Russians, for example, Russian is spoken much more frequently in that region than in the rest of Ukraine mm. because it's not that far from Russia.
0: So it's almost, it's almost as if because those regions are, to some extent, autonomous in a way, or at least they just have more autonomy, and because of the pro-Russian sentiment and the fact that, you know, a lot of those people have heritage from Russia, that it's a pretty easy grab for Putin. And that now that he's grabbed it, he's for sure not going to give it back. I mean,
1: who knows? But my gut is that you're right about that, that even if Putin were to seek peace tonight that that Eastern region of Ukraine is going to be a part of Russia rather than a part of Ukraine. And, Mm. but I I would raise one point because I think your observation is a really smart one is when you say that it's easy, it's easy now. But Putin has spent many, many years building a base of political support in Eastern Ukraine. Not just reminding people of their historic ties to Russia but sending a steady stream of propaganda about why this region should not be subjected, quote unquote, to Ukrainian rule.
0: Wow. I mean, so we were talking about what happened in 2014 and and even going back further, it seems as if so much of this has been at play for years, for years and years and years, which is why, I mean, there's just so many, there's so much more going on in in Putin's head and, and in this decision-making process from him. I really like that you brought up gambling because everything about this and how he's, making these moves and, and his sort of quote-unquote diplomacy if, if we can even call it that it all seems very uh, uh gambly it seems like he's a gambler you know it seems like he's either calling bluffs or making bluffs or you know making moves to to get people to either concede something it's a very it's just a very interesting dynamic and I, I'd like to tie this back into NATO because I think that's something that. Um, that so many people are, are interested about. If you can just give us a quick recap on the NATO situation and you can make it brief. Okay.
1: So I, th- I think you raise a couple of, of really interesting points, but to, f- uh, but to focus primarily on NATO, ever since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, um, NATO has been sort of aimless. In other words, NATO was founded to confront the Soviet threat in the aftermath of World War II, which it did for about half a century then all of a sudden there isn't a Soviet threat anymore. And so then the logical question is, what is NATO for? Mm. And, you know, NATO got involved in Afghanistan. Um, it's done some, uh, it was involved in Iraq. Um, but this, interestingly enough, has sort of strengthened the ties between the NATO nations. And this is where I think Putin may have made a mistake because he assu- he's watched Western European countries Uh, sort of drift away from the U.S. in recent Mm. years. They're still allies, but not nearly as strong as was once the case. Um, Macron talks a lot about how Europe needs to be responsible for its own security. Uh, Merkel and uh, Schultz in Germany have, uh, have kept their distance from the U.S. So I think Putin may have estimated that the fissures within NATO would give him an advantage And so probably Biden's greatest accomplishment to date and Putin's most noticeable shortcoming has been how Putin's threats have reunified NATO for the first time in many years. And the challenge for Biden going forward is to what extent he can keep NATO unified. Mm. If he can keep them united in a strong front against Putin, then this could resolve itself in a way that's good for him and for the US and for the West. If, as time passes and Putin is much more invested in this than a lot of Western voters and therefore a lot of Western leaders, if those relationships begin to fray a little bit, then it becomes much harder for Biden. Because as soon as you know, Germany, for example, decides that their energy needs are more important than continued new- unity through months of, mm. of, 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 of conflict, then Biden's in a much, much tougher spot. And what we haven't even gotten to, and maybe we'll have to do this on another conversation, is we haven't even talked about China. I know, I I wanted to get into that as well. (laughs) Ah. So, um, and of course, there's growing concern that not only is China aligning itself more and more closely with Russia through this, but might try to take advantage of a distracted US to become more aggressive in the Pacific.
0: Whew, so many moving parts, Dan. It is just crazy. Um, I know we have to wrap up soon. I do want to just direct people to your article in the Jewish Journal. Of course, it was written before Russia invaded, uh, although published after. Um, and it, there are were, were corrections at the top of the article. But it was a really interesting analysis on uh, this idea that you put out there of the, the tripolar global ecosystem that we're living in now, right, between yeah. Russia, China and the U.S.?
1: Yeah, if I can do another shameless plug, in addition to my plug for the Jewish Journal. Please. um, I host a webinar uh, monthly for the LA World Affairs Council. The next one is Tuesday night, March 1st. Okay. When we did it at the beginning of February, I called navigating a post-post-Cold War world. So after the fall of the Berlin Wall and after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, that became the post-Cold War world. And the U.S. was the one superpower on the planet. For a period of decades. Mm. Now we're entering a post-post-Cold War world, which is just as different from what we've experienced for the last 30 years as the last 30 years had been from the Cold War. And in a world in which not only China has asserted itself as a superpower, equal in many ways to the US's strength, a newly combative Russia, along with China, presents an Entirely different set of security challenges for the U.S. and the West, I think for a long time, because it's been 30 years, roughly since the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of Americans and a lot of Westerners have fallen into a false sense of security.
0: Mm.
1: Post-Cold War sort of peace is the way the world works. And what we're being reminded of now is that the last 30 years or so, while it hasn't been completely peaceful has been somewhat of an aberration in world history and generally the great powers tend to have more tensions and sometimes hostility so what we're beginning to experience right now is a return to historical norms that aren't quite as pleasant as large powers do often bump up against each other
0: it's it's uh, exactly what my dad was talking about yesterday uh, he was trying to explain to me just this idea of we're in a blip in history where, you know, the global powers have been kind of nice to each other in a certain way or, you know, quote unquote nice and and following international laws, which was just, I mean, unheard of back in the day. And so now we're kind of going back into that. We haven't seen really a European invasion. And in, I mean, God knows how long. Right. So this is it's it's pretty insane.
1: <laughs> I think you summed it up very, very well. It it is pretty insane. And because we don't know what Putin's ultimate goals are, we don't have any way of knowing how it's going to resolve itself. But I think the one thing we do know is we're not going back to the post-Cold War era. We might not know what the post-post-Cold War era looks like, but we've already crossed that river.
0: Yes, we have. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I will put all the links to everything as well inside the episode description. So if you want to send me a link to your webinar or any information on that, send it over and I'll add it to the description as well. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. Thank you.